Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Democrats and Republicans are negotiating fixes to a hole in the state budget. The governor has downplayed the size of the deficit, a few hundred million dollars out of a $20 billion budget. But the impact of his proposed cuts to solve this problem have been huge. Outcry from social service agencies and hospitals all feeling like they're getting hit too hard. Now state lawmakers have joined in with their own plans, some of which restore those controversial funding cuts while finding savings elsewhere. Today, where we live, we're going to hear from one side of this three-way debate over budget priorities as we welcome in Republican legislative leaders. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us first is Len Fasano, who's Senate Minority Leader. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being here. John, thank you for having me. Uh, your colleague, uh, Themis Claridis, is going to be here in just a few moments, uh, who is the House Minority Leader. Let's start with the size of the budget deficit. When we talked to the governor and he talked to reporters last week, he makes a point that it's just a fraction of a fraction of a $20 billion budget, and that is indeed true. But still, you know, $300 million in change is still an awful lot of money. How, how big a budget hole do you project right now? Well, I think it's probably somewhere between 350 and $370 million. And we've agreed as a three-party group that we would try to solve no less than 350 no more than 370 if you would. But I think that recently the numbers the other day put out by OFA Friday demonstrate the fact that we have huge problems coming down the line 2017 is going to have a $550 million deficit, a half a billion dollars. Um, and I don't know where that's going to come from unless we tackle that problem now. And then at the end of 2017, um, we're going to be working on the next budget, which has a projected deficit for the two years of $3.4 billion. That's with a B. So we have got huge problems, and unless we get aggressive and attack the issues uh, long term, uh, we're going to be faced with you know another huge deficit. And that gets to the point that Representative Claritas and I have talked about. We've agreed to be in the room with the Democratic uh, leadership and the governor on three major uh, uh, cornerstones of our agreement. First. We identified the budget deficit for 2016, and we did that. Second, we make that deficit public, and we did that. And third, that whatever fix we agree to must include a long-term strategy to fix the ongoing deficit in the state of Connecticut. So that third piece, I mean, let's let's start with that third piece, which is the long-term strategy part. Um, when we have seen the proposals coming out, and we're going to hear from you about what what specifically is in your proposal to deal with this year's budget deficit, um, we have seen some some cutting, some shuffling. Um, your plan's a little bit different than Democrats, a little different than Governor Malloy's. I don't know that in any of these plans I've seen, I've seen that big structural change that says, 
yeah, we're going to tackle the $550 million of next year and the $3 billion that's coming down the pike. Uh, explain to me where those long-term uh, changes are really being felt in the plans that you're putting forward right now. Well, there's a couple of things. One, we're talking about um, closing the uh, juvenile detention or juvenile training center, which right now costs $540,000 per child. Um, I think that's a significant cost, um, and I think we can reduce that and move that off the books. Uh, and there are many places we can put these kids in nonprofit institutions. Uh, we need to look at um, the debt structure. Currently, the um, governor has bonded um, almost uh, $3 billion, or actually $2.5 billion in debt. Uh, for bonding. We used to not go above 1.8, 1.7. You know, so if you take out a bigger mortgage on your house, your monthly payments are going to be higher. There's no difference in the state of Connecticut. So we need to say, look, we got to bring that number down to something more reasonable. So we would like to put a 1.8 uh, billion dollar cap on it. But before we go, go too far into this, yep. can I just ask about those two things? One has to do with, with bonding. I mean, if we're going to make any infrastructure improvements, whatever in the state, and this is a, you know, a, a, certainly a big issue, I mean, there's going to have to be borrowing done. Are, are we talking about the type of bonding that goes into fixing roads and highways, bridges, and all the other stuff that needs to be fixed, obviously? So there's two issues. Uh, we have a transportation budget and we have the general budget for the state of Connecticut. So the bonding that we're talking about uh, that he has done is uh, not projects associated with roads and bridges, although uh, not to get overly complicated, in our uh, transportation strategy that Representative Claritas and I have put out, um, we talk about using those general obligation bonds to help fund transportation to get to the structural changes uh, so we're not raising gas taxes or putting tolls. Uh, and we've come up with a plan in which we can raise $67 billion in 30 years for transportation, which is a lot of money. Uh, so we've put that on, out on the table. So there's a number of things that I think we need to talk about. But still, that has to be capped by the $1.8 billion. But when the governor has bonded for the uh, uh, almost $2.5 billion, uh, 90% of that has nothing to do with transportation infrastructure. Those are things that, you know, we call into question. When you give $52 million dollars, to a billionaire, uh, that just doesn't make any sense. Explain what you mean. Okay, so he has a first five program, mm -hmm. uh, and there was a company uh, that was going to move from one part of the state to the other part of the state, and they were going to build a building. Uh, this company is a hedge fund uh, owned or operated, I should say, by a, a billionaire. This is, the, this is Bridgewater. This is Bridgewater. And uh, what happened was they ended up not moving for a variety of reasons to Stanford, stay where they are, but they're going to add addition to the building. So they still, uh, the governor still has given them $52 million. I mean, I think there's other places we could put that $52 million as opposed to a hedge fund in which the person is a billionaire. I, and, and, I'll, and honestly, that's something I've talked about probably in this program with the governor and with other people as much as anything else, you know, because we have talked about the necessity of that. One thing I would say, though, is 
I would guess that if a hedge fund like that or another big multinational corporation decided to just up and leave Connecticut, and we have seen this in the past. We've got GE threatening right now. And they said, we're out of here. Business structure isn't that good. And the governor didn't put $52 million on the table. You guys would be barking and saying, why is the governor letting these people leave? Absolutely not. Not when it comes to – when you're talking GE, you're a whole different kettle of fish here. We're talking GE that has 3,000 employees that does a lot of community service, that does volunteerism in this state, both by people and by money. We're talking about, a, a, I don't know, how many hundreds of millions of sales tax that they put in for the goods and services that they provide, uh, the ancillary restaurants. When you're talking about Bridgewater, you're talking about a very finite group of, of employees that have a very little impact, and where you have a billionaire who's behind it, who can fund it. $52 million is a rounding error in his tax returns. I don't think we're talking about an economic engine like GE. I think those are two totally – and that's where you have to sort of come in and make sense of what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, we're talking with Len Fasano. He is the Senate Minority Leader. Uh, joining us now is Themis Clarities, who's the House Minority Leader. And good to see you once again, Representative. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be talking with some of the specifics in your budget plan having to do with closing the gap in this fiscal year in just a moment. But I had asked Senator Fasano to talk about some of the things that you propose that are long-term structural problems uh, in uh, addressing long-term stru- structural pro- problems in the budget because we're not just talking about the $350 million you're trying to close now. It's $500 million next year, and it's billions of dollars down the road. So can you give a few specifics about things that your plan does that will help solve those long-term structural issues? Well, I apologize if I didn't hear the beginning of Senator Fasano's comments, so I may be repetitive, but I know we talked about our transportation plan. And, and, when, and when we talk about things like that, I always use the example of this. You're, you're a husband and wife. You just get married. You live in an apartment. And you decide, I want to start a family. So I need to buy a home because I need, to, I need a yard for my children that I'm going to have, and we need extra room. So we go out and we look for a home. And we decide, based on our finances and what we're getting in, that we can afford a $200,000 home. So we look at $200,000 homes, but we drive by this really beautiful million-dollar home one day, and we say, wow, that's beautiful. We'd really like that, but we can't afford it. But the yard is bigger, and there's more brooms, and when we want to have a party, we can have a lot of people there. So we buy the million-dollar home that we can't afford. That's the difference to me with the governor's transportation plan versus ours. Would we love to put all that money, hundreds of millions of dollars, into a transportation plan? Of course. And if we had all the money in the world, there are so many things, Senator Fasano and our caucuses, and I'm sure the entire General Assembly would do. But we don't have the money. And our problem today is the same problem we had a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, is it's not affordable. We cannot maintain and sustain the money we spend in this state. And when you look at the problem we have today, and then you look three years down the road into the next biennium, and you see minimum $2.5 billion deficit, there there are words out there, there are conversations out there that it could be close to $3.7 billion. I mean, that is just mind-blowing. So when you talk about the transportation plan, or you talk about changing the way we do our pensions or the way we do our retirement benefits or the way we operate our state employees. Now, nobody's saying we should take something away from somebody that was promised to them. I mean, we're people of our word. But 
it's clearly not sustainable. So we can't afford to go to bed at night and get on our hands and knees and say our prayers to whoever we're praying to. Please, can the revenue come in higher than we think it is? Okay, I, I'm just wondering, can we just jump back to that, though? One thing, if you wouldn't mind, that speaks to the long-term structural problem, I mean, one change that you proposed right here so that our listeners understand exactly what your proposal might be that's different than, say, the governors or, or different than, than Democratic leaders. Well, we, I don't, like I said, I don't know if the senator mentioned, but we talked about um, the state employee pension benefits, he- retirement benefits, health benefits, and I'll give you one example. Sure. Right now, state employees, depending on what tier you are, and tiers are based on how many years you've been working for the state, tier 2 employees pay 0% in, and tier 2A employees pay 2% in. The average for all of New England is 7%. We suggested and recommended that it go to 4%. It's, it's a little bit of an increase, yes, but it is a manageable increase. And it will help us in the goal of making these structural changes and making this state, state sustainable, not for today, not for next year, but for our children and our grandchildren, because this is going down the path of, of you know, just unsustainability. Uh, Senator Fasano, how does this line up, this plan line up with uh, what the governor has proposed? He's, he's trying to redo this pension system, breaking it out into a, a couple different tiers, having uh, the state pay for the uh, obligations that we have to state workers in, in a couple of different ways, hopefully flattening out those payments and making them over a longer period of time. How does your plan to deal with our long-term pension issues differ from the governor's? Well, let's look at the governor's. I think I, I do uh, commend the governor for putting out some ideas on the pension that open up some other avenues. Basically, what he wants to do is take Tier 1, which is 1984 employees, uh, Tier 1, and he wants to branch them off and do pay-as-you-go. Now, the argument that he advances is because we're behind, when we first did the pension plan, we did pay-as-you-go. So he never put money away for the retirees. So he's saying, look, the biggest draw and our biggest deficit is with respect to the earlier pensions. So if we take Tier 1 and we make them pay-as-you-go, then there's less of an ARC payment. Those are payments that we have to make to make up for well, we have the actuarial payments, and that may lessen the burden on the state. Now, it may. Uh, we're waiting for numbers. I think it's an interesting idea to look at, and I'd like to see what those numbers are. My guess would be he's probably right. We probably would pay a million and a half guess per year versus the ARC payment, which is much higher. I won't know until I see those numbers, but I think that's something we need to take a look at. We tied into that, Representative Claritas and I, uh, a retirement program that adds three years to uh, state employees who are already eligible for retire. So this is an incentive for people to retire early. Right. And the argument that we would advance is if we do split out Tier 1, then perhaps adding the three years, which would arguably be mostly Tier 1 employees, would benefit because the more years of service, the bigger the pension. So you have three years. That's the incentive it might dovetail with the governor's ideas. So we have thrown that out uh, sort of in the same mode as the governor. The, the, the governor rejects this idea. When we talked to him, he, he said, look, uh, we've asked, we've done this before. We've been asked about early retirements. It ends up costing more money down the road because, look, we've got to pay people to do this work. Obviously, it's work that still has to be done. We've got to hire new employees. These are people who have been on the job for a while. We're paying into their pensions earlier. I mean, the governor uh, representative makes a fairly strong case that by offering early incentives to retire, you're actually losing money down the road. But these are not early retirement benefits, right? 
These are people already entitled to retire, so we're not taking someone who's not eligible to retire and have them retire. These are people who already are retired. So that narrows the pool down significantly. And number two, we may not have to backfill a lot of these jobs, depending on what they are. We have to reduce the uh, state employee workforce. With tr- not to, we, we propose no layoffs, and that was a key component, or furloughs. We're trying to uh, uh, narrow down that pool. This is one way by taking those people who are already eligible to retire and have them retire. Now, the governor and Representative Claritas and I have not had a intellectual conversation on this because we're waiting for numbers. But I think that the way we produce it uh, may show some commonality. Uh, before we take a break, we've got a, a couple of people who want to have phone calls and a couple of tweets. Uh, you're talking about Bridgewater and whether or not the state should be giving a certain amount of money to uh, a large hedge fund. Uh, Jeff says Bridgewater employs hundreds of high earners who live in Connecticut. They also donate millions. The $52 million is a give back for overtaxation. That's uh, a, a tweet from Jeff. Could you just weigh in on this, on this notion of, of how we should be spending money to try to keep companies here or try to move companies from one location to another, essentially an incentive to a company like Bridgewater. The governor has said there's a lot of people who pay a lot of taxes because those people make a lot of money. They, in fact, do pay a lot of money, and, and we certainly understand that that perspective. The problem is when you have a state that is listed 47th, 48th, 49th, 50th, as far as being business unfriendly, when you have governors all over the country using Connecticut as an example of what they shouldn't do and hope, hoping we continue to do it so they can take more of our business. It's not the issue of moving from one state to the next. We want to get people into this state. People need to, I, to come into this state. And because of our policies for many years, whether it's taxation policies, whether it's sustainability policies, whether it's transportation policies, you know, the line, we could, we could talk down the line all day. It's, it doesn't make sense to, to put all that money to move from one town to the next when we can't keep businesses from coming in. Businesses do not want to come in here. Uh, I want to get to a call from Ken's calling from Hartford. Hi, Ken. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi, thanks for having me on, John. So I hear uh, Senator Fasano say $52 million is a rounding error for Ray Dalio. So why don't we just take it? There are 10 people in the state of Connecticut who are worth more than $50 billion. Government policy creates hoarding of wealth. So why can't government policy eliminate the concept of this kind of hoarding of wealth? It's reprehensible that we're talking about cutting social services while 10 people live in absolute luxuriousness at the expense of the rest of us. Ken, thank you very much. Uh, Senator Fasano? Well, number one, Representative Claritas and I have put back all of the cuts that went to the poor and the elderly that the governor, in his original budget back in February, put forth. And then the $108 million, $103 million worth of cuts that he made, Representative Claritas and I sent around a petition and all our caucus members signed it to say that's fundamentally wrong. So we believe that we need to put these services back. That That's not where we need to be looking to cut for our budget. Uh, as far as uh, taking money just because you have money, uh, that just doesn't work. First of all, people just move out of our state, and you're going to lose that money that way. Uh, we have a, a tax structure which is in place. I would argue, and I think Representative Claris joins me on this, that we just have a business-unfriendly environment. And it isn't a question of giving money to people or taking money away. It's the idea of creating a state in which people want to open up businesses, expand their businesses, 
and provide jobs. That's but, what we're talking yeah, but, about. Yeah, but that's not just about taxes, obviously. You're, you're talking about other things that the state could do to attract more business and more high Correct. earners to the state. What would those things be? To attract more to attract To attract more businesses because, I mean, it's been – I've seen a number of studies over the years that taxation, the amount of taxes that either individuals or businesses pay is not the number one motivator for why they they go and do things. Businesses want a certain amount of certainty, for instance, in what their taxes are going to be. Now, that's that's clearly something that that you could address. What are some other things? When we talk about the state being business unfriendly, what exactly do you mean? Well, once again, it's predictability. Uh, GE has talked about the fact that we don't have a way out of our budget deficits, and clearly the numbers from Friday show that we've gotten deep in our budget deficits. We don't have control. A lot of the businesses in Connecticut, there's only three states that are still paying a penalty to the federal government uh, because we borrowed the unemployment fund when it went broke in Connecticut. We ran out of money. We borrowed it from the federal government when there was a recession across the country. Then you had three years to pay it back. Connecticut hasn't paid. So every January... Uh, all the businesses pay this penalty tax. We need to get rid of that. We need to uh, get uh, less cost to, for employees to live in this state. We need to reduce that cost, which means we, renew, we need to reduce taxes and the burdens that we place upon families. So we have good things in the state. Don't get me wrong. We've got great education. We've got great culture. We've got a great way of life. Those are all pluses. But we've drowned that out with the uncertainty of taxes from year to year. We take uh, deductions away from businesses. Recently, the governor did that. We want to put them back. People will not invest in the state unless there is that deduction for that investment, just like every other state does. I, I want to just get representative before we have to take a break to the other part of Ken's question, though, is if we're looking at the types of deficits that we are moving down the road, I think that it is well and good for lawmakers, both on the Democratic and Republican side, to say we do not want to raise taxes on anybody else in the state. But if we truly have the revenue problems that we have, what Ken and many others have suggested is we have people who make not a million dollars and not $10 million and not 20 and $30 million, but billions of dollars. Can we adjust our tax rate so that we can, in a small way, help to capture the fact that some of the wealthiest individuals in the state are able to live here very well, and we have needs in infrastructure and other things and services that we need to pay for? Well, I mean, two things. I mean, to answer that question directly, first of all, we have a state income tax that many other states don't. So that is an incentive for people to leave here, particularly people. We forget that people who have larger amounts of wealth have options that other people don't. So they take advantage of those options and they move or at very least domicile in a state where they have another home that doesn't have a state income tax. And it has been proven time and time again that when we do things like not I don't want to say overly tax because you make more money, you should pay more money. Of course, that's that's a basic premise. But this whole idea of a penalty because you make a certain amount more money doesn't work because people will not – instead of getting X dollars for the tax they're paying, you want to get X plus 5 in that, lack of a better word, penalty. You won't get X at all. So you'll be behind the eight ball. And when we, you know, just to follow up on Senator Fasano's comment, to not betray any trust, but conversations we've had with major businesses in this state, they said point blank, even if you change the policies of what we've done, say, this year with the unitary tax, the loss carry forward, et cetera, change them right now, they're not sure that that would make any difference to them because what they don't have is trust in the way the state is run. They don't have any trust it won't change in six months or a year from now or two years from now. They don't have trust in the philosophy of what we as leaders in the state believe the state should be. 
Uh, we're talking today with Themis Clarities, who's a House Minority Leader, Len Fasano, who's Senate Minority Leader. We're talking with Republicans about some of their budget plans and priorities as we try to close a gap in this year's state budget, but also in the years moving out. We're going to talk about those issues and more. We'll take your phone calls at 860-275-7266. We'll be right back where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking with Republican leaders in the legislature about some of the budget problems and priorities that we have right now. Len Fasano is the Senate Minority Leader. Themis Clarities is the House Minority Leader. We're taking some of your phone calls at 860-275-7266 with questions for them. Let's go first to Marilyn, who's calling from Cheshire. Hello, Marilyn. You're on where we live. Good morning, John. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me. I want to bring up a point. There was a remark made about placing kids in other services and the cost of having the kids where they are right now. I just want to bring up that in 2014, DDS had $48 million in overtime. I am requesting that there be an unblock in the hiring freeze so that they can then hire people to have them at their base pay and therefore put the funds back into DDS so that the programs in the past and the programs in the future can have a better groundhold to remain there. In 2017, it is projected that the programs we have now for the kids graduating in school that year will no longer have the ability to have the services once they leave school. Also, there were over 2,000 children on the wait list for DDS to be placed in homes. That wait list has been eliminated. Some of these children have been on the list for 23 years. There is no place for these children. There is no place to move them. And right now, the only way to get somebody who has a handicapped child placed in a home, both parents have to die. Mm -hmm. If you don't think that's the definition of humane, then the moral compass of our state has gone sorely in the wrong direction. And that study proves that there was $48 million in overtime at DDS. Mm -hmm. Unblock that hiring freeze. Let them hire regular workers at a base pay and let us get the money back in the budget because in the past what was cut has never been reimbursed. Well, when hey, there is hey cut, Marilyn, it never uh, goes back. Marilyn, thank you very much for that because I want to put your, put your thought and your question to Len Fasano and thank you very much for your phone call. So a couple of things. One, Representative Clarence and I feel very, very strongly about the DDS waiting list, extraordinarily so, that we're the ones who uh, demand that the money needs to be put back. That's $103 million that the governor cut. In addition, the budget that we put out back in the spring, Representative Claritas and I, uh, had money put aside specifically for the waiting list. I've forgotten in my mind how many people we could take off that waiting list with the money, but OFA, Office of Fiscal Analysis, gave us a number. So that's clearly on our mind. Number two, with respect to the overtime at DDS, I think you'll hear a lot of the families who are involved with them argue that um, that overtime should not be uh, taken by the employees and question the quality of that time. And that's why Representative Clarence and I believe we need to crack down. I mean, we just heard about $4.4 million of, of overtime last night that uh, is very questionable at best. That's why we want to get control over that. But we feel very strongly about those issues and that we need to give people some help. And with respect to the cuts at the Juvenile Training Center, that's DC, DCF. That's not DDS. It's a different agency. And we think we could take some of that savings and pull it over and help in DDS. Last thing I want to say, with respect to the questions on the budget issue, we can't focus always on the uh, 
the, the tax issue. The problem is it's not a revenue, it's a spending problem. Our budget grew 22 to 23 percent more than last year. That's the reason why we're in our budget deficits. It has to do with our spending, not our tax collecting. I, I wanted to ask you both about Since you brought up the Connecticut Juvenile Training School again, it reminded me that I I'd wanted to ask you about the details of that. Uh, you closed down that school, and obviously I think we've We've heard enough about how that school was not built in the way it should have been built, and it probably isn't serving the purpose it should serve. That said, when you talk to people from the Department of Children and Families, Representative Claritas, they say, well, I, where else are we going to put these kids? We have a small percentage of children who need a certain type of help. Where else are we going to put them if CJTS closes down? Well, Senator Fasano and I have, have taken a very strong stance in regard to um, Philosophically, first of all, what we should be doing with these children and children in similar circumstances. In our proposals the other day, we suggested that you take the kids out of that school. Remember, it's $545,000 approximately per year to care for one of those children. And, and I have never heard more people across the board, whether it's social services, nonprofit providers, uh, state's attorney's office, public defender's office, et cetera, et cetera, advocacy groups saying that those children come out of there at best in the same situation they were when they went in, oftentimes in a worse circumstance. So we suggest taking that money and putting it into other areas where we can take those kids. And depending on their violations, because certainly there's children that have higher level of violations than others, and put them, whether it's in a secured group home, uh, a community home, um, a prison if that's necessary. And so that is, is what we should be doing with that school. But the reality is this. We talk about DDS. It actually offends me. I have to be honest with you. It offends me when you hear, and we've heard the governor say for many years, he would always promise to support the safety net and take care of the people who need it most and the most vulnerable. That's not what we have seen. We saw him cut hospitals and, and people with intellectual disabilities. In September, he maintained that. Senator Fasano and I in our caucuses made it very clear that we don't agree with that. And quite frankly, a lot of the Democratic legislators, legislators did it also. We put the petition together. Only the Republicans signed it to go into special session to fix it. And then we put in our proposals, fully funded that money back in. You know, the Democrats came out with their proposal yesterday, and they did not fully fund it. The governor has not fully funded it. So I'm, I'm almost sick and tired of hearing that, that it's the Democrat Party that cares about people and who cares about our most vulnerable. Put your money where your mouth is. The proof is in the pudding. Who are the people that have stood up and talked about what they support and then done it with our proposals and our policies? Because we are the ones that have done that. And I would urge my colleagues to do the same. Uh, yesterday, Governor Malloy said he wouldn't join other governors uh, who told the federal government that they would not be accepting Syrian refugees. Um, you said you question uh, some of the protocols and vetting process for refugees coming from elsewhere. Um, what was your reaction to the governor deciding that he wants to continue to bring Syrian refugees to Connecticut? Well, listen, I think this is obviously a very sensitive situation, and I, I think that this great country we live in has one of the main tenets has been humanitarian efforts and helping people from other parts of the world who are not in the same circumstances as us and do not have the same advantages and opportunities we have. So that's not what this is about. What this is about is saying we need to get all the information possible before we make a decision to suspend allowing entry, um, and I don't speak for Senator Fasano on this, but because we haven't talked about it yet, 
but suspend entry for the time being so we get the information. What are the security processes? What are the vetting processes? Where will they go? How will we, um, what, will, what money will be spent on them, et cetera? I mean, more information is never a bad thing. It can only help. Get the information and tell us what it is before you make any decisions. I, I just, and I just assume that we're getting all that information. Do you have a thought on this, uh, Senator Fasano? Well, uh, I didn't release it to the press, but I sent a letter to the governor uh, yesterday early afternoon asking him to explain to me what the vetting process is, how are they going to screen um, the refugees to determine what the background is, and I asked him if he could give me the benefit of providing me that information. Um, so I have asked him, you know, I'm sure he hasn't had time to respond, but maybe I'll get it today, to give me that information. I didn't release it to the press. It was just sort of privately. I'd like to understand this issue better. What do you have in place? Who does it? How are the reports? Where the reports go? Things like that. So I'm waiting for that response before I remark further. I want to understand the background of this. Yeah, and if you and if you get that information, I mean, what specifically are you looking for in that information that he would provide that would allow you to make a decision one way or the other about how you feel about this? Because I I'm not necessarily sure states have a whole lot to say about how refugees get resettled in America. But anyway, uh, apparently they must because there seems to be, and I don't know, but there seems to be some inquiry that went out to those states to see what they will do and will not do. And some governors have changed their mind for reasons I don't fully appreciate because maybe they know something about the vetting process. I don't. Once I get that information, I think we're all concerned about not the humanitarian part of it. I, I agree with Representative Claris. But I think we are concerned about the safety issue and just to make sure if we're going to do this that it is done appropriately just in case. I mean, this world is crazy, and we want to make sure that if uh, people are coming here, they are who they purport to be. And we know that they're going to be uh, good citizens. And absent that assurance, uh, I think there's some questions that we need to ask. And that's why I wrote the letter. I, I want to get to some more phone calls. A lot of people are asking questions about the state budget. And I'm talking with uh, Republican uh, lawmakers, the leadership of the Republicans, Len Fasano and Themis Clarity. So I want to go to uh, Jim, who's calling from New London. Uh, go ahead, Jim. You're on where we live. Yeah, I had a quick question about uh, changing the retirement po formula for state employees. Um, I'm personally a benefactor, benefactor of that, and um, I see it as it's, they use the most generous formula that you could figure on figuring pensions, uh, at least for hazardous duty. And um, I was wondering what specifics would they try to change to, to make it more manageable and maybe more equitable and fair? Thank you, Jim, very much for your phone call. Uh, Representative Claritis? If, could he just repeat the hazardous duty part? Um, about the hazardous duty, the way it's the most generous formula that you could imagine for for uh, for figuring out what your retirement's going to be. Right. Well, what we what we did when we looked at at these uh, ideas and proposals, and when we looked to see where we are now and where we might need to go to to help the state move forward, is we looked at the non-hazardous duty portion of it because obviously the hazardous duty portion of of state employees um, pensions is higher for evidence by the name so we are the suggestions we made were for the non-hazardous duties one because I, I just don't think we felt Senator Fasano and I felt qualified to make the decision based on a job that is more that is more dangerous. But what we did with the non-hazardous duties, as I mentioned before, we said instead of 0% and 2% for Tier 2 and 2A, 
input into your pension, it would be 4%. And we talked about increasing co-pays, um, only getting COLA increases and not step increases, which are increases based on just how long you've been there, assuming you're doing the job better just because you've been there longer. And ways to make the pension plan more affordable and sustainable and so we can give people what we promised, but in an affordable way. Do you want to pick up on that? A couple of things. I agree with what Representative Claire said. I would add that we are looking at the issues of not having overtime included in the pension, uh, whether it's hazardous or non-hazardous. Uh, right now, um, their overtime is included in the pension. That seems to be uh, not in keeping with uh, what is normal out in the world. The second thing is vacation pay is also added. So when someone accumulates their vacation pay, they get a vacation pay check and they get it. But we've also done a number of uh, contracts um, that the governor is going to be negotiating now to reduce uh, some of the contracts, in particular at the prisons, have a guaranteed overtime built in. Um, and also, for instance, if uh, like Representative uh, Claritas was talking about, you know, we look at hazards a little bit differently. We want to make sure it's safe. On the other hand, if there's a snowstorm and I am late for the second round shift and I get there 45 minutes late, so the person who's there has you have to start the shift at a full staff. So the person who's supposed to leave has to stay for that 45 minutes. Well, that person gets four hours of overtime automatically, even if they're just there for 45 minutes. You know, we're suggesting maybe we want to back that off to two hours of overtime, something a little bit more reasonable given the light of the of the issues that or, we're Or in. if they worked an hour of overtime, how about just the one hour? Well, you know, uh, I would argue that that would make more sense. I'm trying to reach a settlement ground, so I'm trying to uh, appease a little bit. But you're right. It should be one hour equals one hour. But I can understand the issues that get involved, uh, given the fact that we are dealing with uh, prisons and stuff like that. But I agree with it. But I think, anyway, the point of it is is that we need to look at those provisions in the contract. And they go on and on and on. And they're not just for hazardous. They're for non-hazardous as well. Uh, so we need to look at a lot of those different details and determine how we cut them down. We have 20 suggestions that we have given with our proposal to the governor to take a look at, all of which the governor can negotiate now if we come to an agreement. Hey, when we come back, we're going to take a break in just a moment. I just want to ask you, because uh, there's a lot more details I want to get to, and there's numbers flying around about how you want to solve the problem versus the governor or, or Democrats. Can you just talk about the negotiation process? I mean, something that I've honestly been hearing from your caucus for quite some time is if you just let us into the process and let us negotiate with you to help solve some of these problems, we would have a better product. And that has not honestly happened at the end of any of these legislative sessions that I know of. And now uh, we're in a little bit of a crisis in the middle of uh, a session here uh, or in the middle of a, a budget year. And now you're being asked to take part in this. So what's it like? How's the negotiations going? Oh, John, I wouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> wonderful experience. Yeah, listen, that, I mean, you sound facetious. You sound I, like I you're not telling me the would truth. Never sound facetious. <laughs> I mean, listen, here's the thing. I don't feel like. Senator Fasano in our caucus is asking to be in the room is a big ask. I mean, to anybody that runs a business or, quite frankly, even in your family, everybody gets together and makes decisions when it's a decision that affects the group. So these, this, I mean, it's gotten to the point where we, it's like we have to ask to do something that is understood should be happening. So if we're all being honest, the reason why we're in the room is because they got themselves in a very serious hole and they don't know what to do about it, and they are afraid that they're going to continuously get criticized for it because 
they did it. But the, the thing that is, I guess, confusing to many of us on the outside is it doesn't really feel like it's a negotiation between three different sides because it feels like one side, the governor's office, puts out some cuts, and then you and the Democrats each have to then react to them with your own proposals. All it, They're all in the media. And I don't know, Senator Fasano, it doesn't really feel like it's a negotiation which you all are able to stand up there at the end and say, we solved the problem together. It sounds like we're all doing kind of the same crap we, we always do. Well, uh, yes and no. I think that the proposal that the Republicans have put out is uh, significantly different than proposals that the governors put out and the Democrats put out in that we look at cuts, which they do as well. But we put a lot of long-term structural changes and the way to look at government a little bit differently. And I think we um, are putting that piece out there to have conversations. Now, what has happened has been the following. So let's just pick up where we are uh, because the real test is coming. Um, the governor put out his proposal, um, maybe not with a lot of numbers in it, but there are proposals out there. Uh, tough to quantify his without the numbers that he uh, has yet to give, only because he hasn't done all the math yet. We gave out a very detailed uh, PowerPoint proposal uh, to everybody. The Democrats yesterday came out with a one-page proposal, which they handed out. I'm not going to comment because I believe in the sanctity of the room as to that proposal. But on Friday afternoon or Monday afternoon, we're all going to meet. And I think that's when the conversations really do begin. And that's what's going to be interesting. Are they having us in the room for political cover? So they could say Republicans want to be in the room. No. We, they're in the room. But you know what? We're going to do it without but At them. least you're in the room. Right. But, you know, we want to be in the room to express our ideas and show we have ideas. And I think Representative Clarence and I have shown that it wasn't rhetoric. We had some very serious ideas we put out there. Now the question is, we got to have serious conversations about these serious ideas. That's what's going to take place, I think, at the next meeting. And I think that's going to tell Representative Clarence and I exactly what the Democratic majority and the governor really want to do. As I said earlier today, we are not in that room to fix a 2016 hole. That's not our goal. If they want to do it, they could go ahead and do it without us. We're in there to do something for the future of the state. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, potential cuts to the Connecticut Citizens Election Fund. Also, more about the transportation priorities. We try to go through a lot of points in the budget plan coming out from the Republicans. Len Fasano and Themis Clarities are here with us in studio. We'll take some more of your phone calls as well coming up here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, uh, a special edition of our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse. We're going to be talking with some reporters from Vermont Public Radio to talk about their documentary called Becoming Bernie, uh, which will air on WNPR on Sunday. Uh, They'll be discussing the rise of their senator, Bernie Sanders, and how the Democratic Party is responding to his uh, popularity in this race for president. That's coming up tomorrow here on Where We Live. Today we're talking with Republicans Len Fasano and Themis Claritas. They're the Senate and the House minority uh, minority leaders, respectively. And we're talking about their budget plans. We've got a lot to cover in just the last couple minutes here, including some details. We saw in the uh, Democrats' plan that came out just the other day that they would suspend the Connecticut Citizens Election Fund for a year. This is, of course, part of what the, part of what the state has done uh, over the course of the last decade or so following the Roland administration scandals to try to clean up, change the way we hold elections. Uh, Senator Fasano, what, what do you think about that plan? Do you have any cuts to any of the uh, clean election funding in your proposal? So our proposal reduced the clean election funds by 20 percent across the board. It's just 
there's just a lot of money in there that we don't need, and we can certainly run our elections by 20 percent across the board. So I think that that's where our savings came in. You know, I I don't want to comment on their proposal except to say I'm curious as to the philosophy to say we need it, but we just don't need it for 216. But we need it thereafter. So I'm a little curious as to what the philosophy or strategy is on that. And, and your cut is a 20 percent cut that would move forward in, in the following years, too. It wouldn't just cut it for one year and then be reinstated. Correct. And it's a proposal we've put out there numerous times. Um, but, yes, it would be a cut that goes into the future. An awful lot of people would say that that clean elections fund is what has helped a lot of Republicans actually mount uh, campaigns in races that weren't competitive in the past, then, Ms. Claritas. I mean, this is a lot of Republicans didn't like this whole plan, but it's actually helped Republicans at least as much as it's helped Democrats. Well, that's that's an, an educated guess. I mean, you could also say that the messages that we've put forth in the past eight or 10 years have all have been the reason why we've gained more seats. I mean, we've gained 27 seats in three elections in the House. And so I, I can't tell you if that's the reason why or it's not the reason why. I don't think anybody really knows what it is. But either way, we felt it was a responsible way, as we have in the past, to say let's reduce it 20 percent going forward. And remember, this coming year is going to be the entire House and the entire Senate up. But three years from now, it's the governor, all the constitutional offices, and the House and Senate. So that's the year where the big money is in there. So um, that's why we felt it was the most prudent way to just do it across the board. I want to ask you both about your transportation priorities. We started talking a bit about transportation. Um, you say that you can make transportation fixes uh, in a way that's going to be less costly than what the governor's put forward. Let me just ask you very specifically one thing I've asked the governor about quite a bit, which is nobody ever talks about the possibility of collecting tolls through some passive collection method. I understand you don't want to talk about raising new revenues. You want to talk about cutting spending. But if we're actually going to get at some of the massive multi-billion dollar transportation uh, problems here, why wouldn't we toll our roads the same way almost all of our neighbors throughout New England and the Northeast do? Well, I mean, if you're having a philosophical conversation about it and use the word passive, and clearly many states, including Florida, have done it in a way that's very you know, easy and workable, not the old tolls of years past on the Merritt Parkway in Connecticut. So, I mean, philosophically, is it a more efficient way to do it than we've done in the past? Yes. I guess from my perspective, the problem is because it's not a spending, a revenue problem, it's a spending problem, all these different ways of gaining more revenue, whether it's Keno or tolls or these money grabs, which is what they are, where, where is it going? You know, it, it all goes into the general fund or it'll go into the special transportation fund. And there, where will that money be? I mean, our problem now. It will be in a lockbox that yeah, you will lock create. Box, right. Who, and who will have the key will always be the question, John. Remember, the, the problem is we always have extra money coming in and then we always spend it. OK, but let's just say that we're able to have. Should we, I mean, quickly, Senator, should we have a special transportation fund that is in some sort of a lockbox that is actually spent on special transportation funding? And then secondarily, should we toll to try to get some more money into that box? So, number one, we need a constitutional amendment to uh, make it a constitutional lockbox. That's number one. Number two, the reason why the tolls don't work is very simple. The other tolls around the country, around our states, existed prior to the federal law when we made a deal with the federal government that we would take down the tolls, receive more federal money. That's the reason why Senator Murphy was saying, hey, raise the federal gas tax because the state of Connecticut would get more money. And the theory was if you don't have tolls, you get more money from the federal government. 
for us to get back the money that we need, Commissioner Ritiker, who I think is the Department of Transportation Commissioner, I believe is an excellent guy. He ran the numbers at ten cents a mile and at twenty cents a mile. At ten cents a mile, you, you still can't make the money you need to make the changes. At twenty cents a mile, you can. The average across the country, no one does it higher than five cents a mile. So we would be double what it is to everybody else, and four times for us to make any money on it. That's the reason why the tolls is. That's the reason why the governor is completely run away from this toll idea. You don't hear him talking about it because it's unrealistic. He doesn't say where he's going to get his $100 billion because he thought it would be the tolls. But after Commissioner Ritiker did this report and this analysis, it turns out this is not the way to do it. And I agree with that. And that's why I'm against tolls. I I have to ask you just one last question. I'm sorry we just have about a minute or so for this. But uh, the biggest cut in your plan, canceling about a $95 million payment into a special revenue sharing program with cities and towns. Exactly. Tell me exactly how that works out, given that the cities and towns are expecting money. Well, number one, what this is, is in 2016, no money gets paid to towns in 2016. We collect it for the year. We hold on to it and we don't make a distribution. It's not until 17. So we said, okay, we're in a time of crisis. We need to take that. Number two is in 17, it's short 30 million. And we put the money back in our plan to 30 million. Number three, I think it is uh, questionable why people would call this the um, property tax relief for municipalities. It's simply, it is not that. It would force municipalities, I would argue, because they put a cap that you can't raise your um, grand list or your taxes more than 2.5, except for borrowing and for capital projects. Well, then they're going to do exactly what we do in this state. We borrow for everyday expenses, so they stay under the 2.5. So you're trying to get municipalities to get more in debt. This is If you want to do property tax relief, let's talk about it, do it the right way. I would suggest this is the right way. But nevertheless, we take that money, still put it back in 2017 to make the distributions that we promised. Uh, Len Fasano and Themis Claritis are in negotiations with the governor and also Democratic lawmakers. And hopefully within a, a couple of weeks or so, we'll find out where you, where you guys uh, head. But thank you both so much for coming in. I want to appreciate, uh, I appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much. Uh, I also want to thank the cameras of CTN, the Connecticut Network, for coming in today. A program produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon is our digital editor. And the executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. I'm John Denkowski. Thanks for joining us.